Well, over the last couple of Sundays, we've been in a small series about the birth of Jesus and how specifically the birth of Jesus isn't the beginning of the story. At least, it's the beginning of the end of the story. So there's been this Old Testament growing chorus, we said, of someone coming. Someone's coming, and you piece it all together, and sure enough, it's Christ. He's the one. He came to fulfill all of these many prophecies of the Old Testament, this growing anticipation that someone's needed. This guy can't do it. That guy can't do it. Then we camped out on the specific theme last Sunday that Jesus is the answer to God dwelling with his people. There's been this this promise of God dwelling with his people, this problem of sin keeping us from God permanently and, and gloriously dwelling with his people, and Christ is the answer. So in him, we're brought in to God. We're brought to him. These themes are like skipping rocks. You know, some of you are good at skipping rocks. You know, just what kind of rock to look for. And you can get it to skip six or seven times across a smooth lake if you throw it good. Well, it's like taking a flat stone of a theme like God's presence and throwing it across the the water of the Old Testament and seeing all the places where it hits. So... Just a couple of days ago, Christmas Eve, we talked about how Jesus is the answer for God redeeming. We need redemption. And there were small r redemptions all through the story. Now in Jesus, we have capital R redemption, the true final rescue. Well, today we're going to take this stone, the theme of Jesus being God's reign, And throw that again across the water of the Old Testament and see where it skips, where it hits. But let's start first with uh, something more social, something more psychological than, than a biblical analysis. Let's talk about the need for a king. A friend of mine recently lost his grandfather. And as he told me about his grandfather's death, he said, it feels weird It feels like I lost a layer of protection over me. Isn't that interesting? This guy's in his mid-40s. He's financially independent. He's not dependent on his grandpa for money. That's not why he feels like he lost a layer of protection over him. They don't even live in the same town. But he said that it feels differently without his grandpa alive, and it's not a good feeling. Why? You see the movie, Where the Wild Things Are? Or maybe you read the book some years ago. The movie fills in the gaps of the small story in the book with a lot of dark and heavy tones. And so that wasn't really appealing to to some viewers who went and saw it. It wasn't appealing to my kids. Uh, But one good thing about the dark, depressing parts of the movie was that they portrayed lowliness and heaviness and conflict and chaos as truly being hopeless, as truly being miserable, as truly being unfixable. It's like the theme of Ecclesiastes in our Bible, which talks about fulfillment and where do we go to get fulfillment. It's also like the thundering judgment of the law. These things, you know, either as Ecclesiastes moans or as the law thunders, You hear the whisper of Jesus. 
As Christians, we come to a book like Ecclesiastes, and we hear the complaints. Nothing satisfies. Not that, not that, not that. And we know what the answer is. Well, this movie offers no real solution. It's just an exploration of hopelessness. But that's good. It points us in the right direction. Hopefully it won't give anything away that you haven't already seen, maybe by reading the book or seeing just the previews of the movie. But it's a a lonely, angry boy who runs away from home and eventually runs into these odd, giant beasts. And they're also lonely and also angry and uh, in constant conflict with each other. So this boy tells him that for some years he's been a king over Vikings. It doesn't get tougher than that, right? Vikings are tough. You're the boss of Vikings? Whoa. They're impressed. And so they invite him to be their king. They ask him, can you take away the loneliness? One says, I feel better when we have a king. Another one says, I want you to be king forever. One of the creatures at one point keeps telling the boy, this world is yours. You are the owner of this world. And then they start talking about building a place where, quote, only the things you want to happen, happen. We all want to be king. We all want to have a king. Well, in the movie, the disillusionment isn't far behind. No, no doubt, a 10-year-old is king. That can't be good. So they realize he isn't the king, and he realizes that he really can't lead them. He doesn't know what he's doing. And then all the loneliness and chaos and conflict floods back in, even in a world where you've, you've run away from home and you're living with mystical, mythical creatures in the woods. Even there, it doesn't work. Even as you make up a story, you know there's going to be conflict. Some of these issues that you have back home are going to resurface here in this made-up world of the wild things. One of them says, you're not a very good king. Who can bring away, who can take away the loneliness? Who can bring in peace and satisfaction and joy? Think about this, too. Why are kids happier, more contented, when a parent is lovingly in charge. Do you know that? Hopefully you know that dynamic if you're a parent. Uh, If you don't have kids yet, and the Lord someday blesses you with kids, you, you better know this. Your kids are contented and happy and emotionally secure when mom and dad sometimes are firm. Not just firm, that's to be comfort and love as well, but but they, they need expectations. They need they need rule, they need authority. I I, one of the coaches on a hockey team, kids five to eight or so, and you can see some of the kids that are loved but not led. And so I'll make up silly rules to teach them life lessons along the way. You know, you come to Coach Ryan for water, you have to ask nicely and say please. And some of the kids at first thought I was kidding. They were like, what? Give me water. Ask nicely and say please. No, give me water. All right, go. I'm not giving you any. I would just, I'd fight them, you know? Not, not physically, but I would. 
verbally just put up a wall and say, you're not getting any. And eventually they would they'd cave and they'd come and they'd ask. And now they do it with smiles. They do it, I don't know if it's a joke or not, but they, they, they know to, to ask nicely and happily. And, and there's security in that. You can see them start to sort of develop a relationship with you and find some trust and some comfort in you, in part because you've been nice, but in part also because you can lead them. Well, we were made to have a ruler or a king. We may not prefer a monarchy as a political system. I'm quite glad for the birth of our country and and that some people left England when they did to to come here and, and, and birth this thing. I prefer democracy over a monarchy, but socially, personally, and emotionally, we were made to need a ruler or a king of sorts. And this isn't a bad thing. God's put it there, and he's put it there for a good reason. The sooner we acknowledge it and then seek the solution he provides in it, the better off we are. There's a need for a king. Secondly, let's talk about the anticipation of a king. Again, let's take this theme of God's rule in Scripture. Take up that smooth stone and skip it across the water of the Old Testament and see where it, it pops up. Now, remember, we talked about God's presence a while back, and, and as we did that, I said, keep in mind, God's presence is everywhere. It's always everywhere. He's in heaven. He's in earth. He's a spirit. He doesn't dwell in, in what we make with our human hands. He's everywhere, but there's a way in which you can say, where is God revealing his presence in a powerful and special way at a certain time? And that's where the the smooth stone of God's presence hits the water, the Old Testament, in God's plan. Well, the same thing goes with God's rule. God is always sovereign. There are plenty of verses that tell us that. He is always sovereign. Jesus put it in such explicit terms. He said, if one hair drops to the ground, it's not apart from your father's will. He's that much in control. And he's always that much in control, even if what's happening is him permitting this thing, this evil thing, not causing it. He's still in control. But what we're doing is taking this smooth stone of God's rule and authority, throwing it across the the surface of the Old Testament and seeing where that pops up in a significant way, where he shows his authority, his rule, in an intimate and special way. Okay, so let's go. Let's start at the beginning once again. The garden. A place where God is king. He's not just king, he's other things too. He's father, he's creator, he's sustainer, he's provider. But there's no doubt he's king. And his word goes, and Adam and Eve at first follow his word. Then sin enters this world. The heart of sin is trying to squeeze our little butt onto his throne and even to wiggle him off. That was the temptation that Eve had from the serpent in the garden, right? You can be like God. And he was half right. They would be like God and that they would know the difference between good and evil. But God knows the difference between good and evil from the outside, like a cancer doctor knows about cancer without having it. God knows sin that way. Adam and Eve would, yes, know more than they currently know once they sin. They'll know sin. They know it from the inside. 
And part of what has led them to this act of rebellion against God is entertaining the possibility that maybe he hasn't really said. Maybe he really hasn't commanded. Maybe he really isn't good. Maybe he doesn't have your best interest in mind. That's essentially the temptation of the serpent in the garden. They entertain it, and what they're doing, again, is trying to get a little bit of a cheek on God's throne and to squeeze him out. Which means that the reality in the experience of sin can be seen in a bunch of different ways, but they all have the same seedling, the same root. Sometimes we want to squeeze God off his throne in blatant rebellion, by ignoring what he said, by even calling into question his goodness, or whether he has the right to tell us what the rules are. And we'll make up our own rules to play by. Or by pretending he's not there. Pretending there's no one on the throne anyway. It's just an empty throne. It's my life. It's my throne. Sit down. Or, even more subtly, even in things like worry, there's a little seed of the fruit that was in the garden. Worry? Really? I mean, that's so culturally acceptable, right? It shows you care if you worry, right? I mean, that really means that you're concerned and you're diligent and, oh, you, you, you have cares and you're human. Well, what worry really says, especially for Christians who who know that God's on his throne, who want to submit to his will, it says maybe he isn't on his throne. Maybe he isn't really in control of this thing, this problem I have. Maybe he really isn't wise as he's orchestrating the package of the circumstances of my life. Maybe he really isn't there listening, paying attention, seeing what I'm going through. Oh, we're not bold enough to say all those things most of the time. But whenever we worry, that's really what's implied, isn't it? Is he really there? Does he really have it? Is he really under control here? Is he going to lose it? Can I do better? Can I just get in there? Can I just hit some buttons and take control of the joystick of my life, please? That's why the Bible, the New Testament especially, tells us, don't be anxious for anything. Instead, pray. You can't do anything about it. Pray to the one who can do something about it. Don't be anxious. Don't grumble or complain. Why is that such a bad thing? Again, that's, that's so common in our culture today. Of course it's okay to complain, as long as it's not too much and too obnoxious and people don't hear you too loudly. Well, Scripture says, do all things without murmuring, without complaining. Why? Because even if it comes to me through a jerk, through an evil guy and an evil act, God's behind it. He's in it. He has purposes for it. You see how sin is not just the bad stuff. Sin is not just the, the black sins, you could say. It's not just Ouija boards and Satan tattoos. You know, whatever the worst thing is in the world you can think of. It's not just that. It's also the stuff we... Middle, Amer- middle class Americans struggle with day in and day out, even on our best days. We need a king. After the garden, there's no king. Adam and Eve are cast out and 
Well, you have promises all the way through the book of Genesis, but you have promises coming, spectacular promises, yes, coming to just one family, different generations, Abraham, Jacob, uh, Isaac, Jacob, then Judah. You have the promises repeated, but basically all you have is God showing up and repeating some promises to one family. And then at the end of the book, Genesis 49, the first explicit promise about a king. There'll come a lion-like ruler from Judah, from Judah's loins, his offspring, and the people will obey him. Hmm. You go all the way to Deuteronomy 17 before you see the next promise of a king to come. God says there, when you come to the land and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Now eventually in 1 Samuel 8, the people do just this. They cry out, give us a king like the nations. God knew it was coming. And on one hand, he wasn't concerned about it. He didn't have problems with it. He said, I will let you do it. When you ask, I'll let you do it. That's where this thing's going. We need a lion-like ruler from Judah to come in, right? We need a seed of the woman to be born who will crush Satan. But when they say, give us a king like the nations in 1 Samuel 8, it's very clear in the context. In another sense, it's a rejection of God as their king. Give us a king that we can see. Give us a king where we can, you know, go to a parade and go, there he is. Yeah, there, that's one. That's, that's our king. Give us a king that we can actually go to and petition, who has a court and he has structure, his people you can go to. You can file a complaint with somebody, even if you know it goes in the trash. Give us a king like that. It's a rejection of God in some ways. But nevertheless, God gives him a king, and it's Saul at first. A guy who's a, a good military leader, and yet he's not godly. God's favor is never with him. So quickly you have promises that another guy's coming. David, young David. Saul hates the fact that God has set his favor on David, so Saul's trying to kill him. So many of the Psalms written by David are David on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. Yet David has the promise that he's going to be king. So when By the way, David prays, please preserve my life. We have to remember that that was in a unique context of God having already promised him the kingdom of Israel, right? There's some redemptive history purposes in David saying, preserve me, keep me, tie it to your name, do it for your fame, because God had already said he would be king. There's this promise of an eternal rule under David. 2 Samuel 7 is the chapter where we get the biggest David promises. If I said to you, where do we go for promises to Abraham? Genesis what? Throw throw some chapters out. Go ahead. 12 or 15 or 17, but 12 is a great place to start. So Genesis 12, promises to Abraham. Promises to David. 2 Samuel 7 would be the chapter for that. It's a good thing just to tuck away. Remember, if you want to go flip it in your Bible for what God promised David that we know Jesus later came to fulfill. 
So these are promises for David and his offspring that there would be eternal rule. And get this, by Micah chapter 5, a verse we've referred to a few times already in the last couple of weeks, there'll be an eternal ruler. It's one thing to say there'll be an eternal rule, an eternal throne, an eternal government. Another thing to say someone's coming who's been around forever. From Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, insignificant little Bethlehem, from him, from her, will come forth one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Promises getting enlarged. But God's judgment then comes because of the people's sin and because mostly the king's sin. The king's after Solomon, boy, they go downhill fast. So God promises judgment to come, and the judgment has two main parts. This judgment is, number one, God's going to divide the kingdom in half, split it in two. He's going to make two kingdoms. I mean, this is bad if you're a king. The kingdom's going to get split into half, and you're not going to have half of it. This is bad if you're in the kingdom. You just got half as big. The other judgment that's to come, one we've been talking about, is that the people will be removed from their land and the place of God's worship presence, and they'd be taken into captivity in Babylon. All the while, the promises keep getting bigger, not more reasonable. That's the way I would have done it. That's the way I actually do it. I promise big. And then I get more reasonable. Ever done this with your kids? Sure, we can do it. Yeah, tonight, you bet. And then stuff comes up. Life happens. You didn't realize you've promised seven things instead of four, which four would be more reasonable. I promise big, and then I get more reasonable. God's promises throughout the Old Testament seem like they should be getting more reasonable because the hope seems to be going downhill. Time's running out, it seems possibilities seem like they're shrinking and yet the promises are getting bigger and bigger so while they're in captivity Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 both talk about a government to come God's government which will supersede all governments all of them you see in Ezekiel 17 that this thing is going global listen to this Ezekiel 17 God says I will take a sprig from the lofty top and I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Now, this isn't God talking about his garden. It's not tree planting for tree planting's sake. It's a word picture. The tree is his government, his rule, his authority, his reign in the world. He'll take something small and he'll plant it and in time it will be a giant cedar tree. And listen to this. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. Notice every kind. In the shades of its branches, birds of every sort, every kind, every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field will know that I'm the Lord. I'll bring low the high tree. I will make the low tree high. You see what that's saying? You see, if this is a, a word picture that really isn't about trees, 
But instead, it's about God's reign, his rule in this world. And it's talking about it being big. When he talks about every bird, he's really not just being a bird watcher. He's talking about people there, isn't he? Birds are what dwell in trees. People are what dwell in governments and under governments. You see the mission implications here? Every kind, every sort. Like, got, like what got repeated in different words in Revelation 5, verse 8, that one day in heaven there'll be a multitude which no man can number from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, all peoples. We saw it similarly last Sunday in Zechariah 2, that many nations will join themselves to the Lord and they shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst, God says. Nothing more than really the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that in you there'll be a blessing to the nations. Not just one nation, the nations, plural. It's what we frequently see in the Psalms. A call to worship that is global. Let all the nations fear him. Let all the coastlands bow before him. Let his glory hit all the peoples. We see in the Old Testament just hints of this. Of it being outside Israel just occasionally. A Rahab enters in by the grace of God. But there are hints that this thing's going Global. There are hints that his presence and his reign, his glory and his favor one day will go outside of one nation to a spiritual nation, a priesthood, a spiritual priesthood. But not yet. Remember, what we're talking about in this timeline here is what these promises were at the time of Babylon. These things are being promised while they're out of the land and don't have a king. And then after 70 years in Babylon, God restores them to the land, right? He brings them back. We saw it just a couple of days ago. The temple's rebuilt. But here's what we didn't see a couple of days ago. No king. Back in the land. No king. They're not really in their land. They're in the land. But there's foreign rule. They still see themselves as exiled, even though they're back in their land, because they're still, it says, in slavery. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. So get this. For almost 600 years No king in Israel. That's breathtaking. If you march yourself through all the king promises that came before, right? We only mentioned a few. But if we took the time to look at every single one and see the same ones repeated at different times, to see it just build up this monumental pile of promises about a king, A greater king, a bigger king, an eternal king, a king that people obey, a godly king, a forever king, a universal king. And then you come back home, you set up the temple, and your people have no king. Not for another generation, 
but for 600 years. And for 400 of those years, no what? No prophets. No one talking. You feel it building once again? Remember Gen- I'm sorry, remember Galatians 4.4. 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The fullness of time. We said, it's a word picture like a, a pregnancy. When she was about to bust. <laughs> when she was full. When the time had come. When the pregnancy was in its nine and a half month. Jesus came. That's when God sent his son to be born of a woman. Which now leads us to what we've been talking about all month, what we've been celebrating in our culture and as a church, the birth of a king. Eventually a king was born. Jesus is that promised ruler and shepherd. And that's why so much of Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 talk about Jesus being of the son of David. He's a son of David. Of David. That's how Matthew begins his account. Here's the genealogy of the son of David. We've got to get this right. The promises were to David. And we haven't had a king in the Davidic line for 600 years. Here's one. And that's why he was born in Bethlehem, David's city. And how did God have it so that Mary and Joseph would give birth in Bethlehem? They lived in Nazareth, Right? We had a child born shortly after we moved to England. So we realized, which everyone here could realize, you can see this, right? You have to get there to have a baby, or you better stay put. There's a time, you know, 38 weeks, I don't know, 37 weeks, 36 weeks. At some point, you can't go anywhere. They're not going to let you fly anymore. You've got to have a baby where you're planted, or you should have left earlier. Well, Mary and Joseph do the very inconvenient thing of traveling when she's about to give birth. In fact, it seems like as they arrive in Bethlehem, she's giving birth. And why are they there? Because God put it in the heart of a foreign king to decide to do a census, to decide to enlist the people. Everyone had to get back to the land where they were from to put their name on a list and be registered for taxes. They have to be back in Bethlehem, and they have to be back then. They don't care. The Roman government does not care whether you're pregnant or not. God uses that, this little Nazarene couple, to go to Bethlehem so that it would be fulfilled, that the son of David would be born in the city of David. Oh, there's so many ironies of the birth scene. There's a king who's born in weakness, right? The whole thing is just saturated in humility and meekness. He's born into a working class family. He's laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough. Because there's no room for him. Get this, the king of David is born in the city of David And there's no room for him in an inn. He has to make cattle shove over. The king is here and they don't know it. It's revealed only at first to shepherds. Shepherds. 
which to us sounds pretty cool. Shepherds, yeah, why not? David was a shepherd. Yes, David was a shepherd. But in ancient Near East culture over the years, they had grown more and more, um, well, unliked by the culture. Think of a, a farmer today. Most of the farmers who are making it today have big equipment. They have GPS guiding their big plows and combines. A, a, a farmer who only has a little plot of land, though, looks like his farm, smells like his farm. He's got his farm underneath his fingernails and on his overalls. And Well, even more so in their culture, shepherds were kind of kept at at a distance. Shepherds were the smelly ones. Shepherds were the dirty ones. Shepherds were the weird ones. After all, they're out in the middle of nowhere with no one to talk to but sheep. They probably talk to themselves when they come into town and need to buy something. Shepherds. God revealed the coming of the Messiah to the back alley people, to the people in the dirt to people of outcasts in society. On the other hand, he also revealed his coming to magi, whatever that is. We're not exactly sure. We know that they're king-like, but they're probably not kings, and they're wise men of sorts, but we know they're noble and they're rich, and they know what to do at the coming of a king. You come and you bring gifts, and they do. They bring gifts that are fitting of a king who's being born, And they're apparently not distracted, not bothered by the fact that he's in a stall. He's laying in a feeding trough, that he was born of a working class family. They fall down and worship him, it says in Matthew 2, 11. No surprise, it it was revealed to them by angels in a star, right? Think of this. Angels are the ones who announce to the shepherds that Christ is here. Angels are the ones who sing his praise at his birth. I'm sure in these times, a great, noble, big, glorious king, when he makes an announcement, he's got a great, big, glorious herald. The guy who makes the announcement. The the bigger the king, the more noble the herald. You find the guy with the loudest voice. The James Earl Jones accent. You find a guy who can blow a big trumpet. And you find another guy who can make very good scrolls for the announcement that's being hung in the city center. He can write very well. It's it's all fitting of a glorious king. And on the one hand, God reveals himself to shepherds. On the other hand, Nothing but angels will do to announce that he's there. Nothing but angels' choir will do to announce and praise that he's come. Hints of glory and majesty all nestled into a whole lot of plainness, even weakness. But then there's an invitation of the king. The fourth thing in your notes, the invitation of the king... This king came in lowliness. He came as one of us because he came to save us. He didn't in his first coming come with a sword, but at first in baby fat. Is there anything softer, more gentle than baby fat? 
I have a one-year-old niece in town with us this week. And holding her and pinching her belly is, that is the most fun I had yesterday. I don't know about you. I mean, that is the softest substance in the world. That baby chub is, oh my goodness. God came in baby fat. God came in the softness and meekness of a baby. Now, as he taught, he didn't hesitate to refer to himself in kingly ways, even though he was born in simplicity, and even though he was raised uh, in a working-class home, even though he's later on a homeless prophet. He still refers to himself as the king. There are several parables where Jesus is the king in the story that he's telling. Several parables where there's a kingly invitation going out for a dinner party. Matthew 22 is one of these, but there are others. And Jesus uses this word picture to describe his invitation to Israel and really to the whole world to come enter into his kingdom and enter into fellowship with him, to come and party with him because things can be now right. When I read these parables like that, I can't help but think of the story of Mephibosheth. Great story, weird name, 2 Samuel 9. Here's the context. Saul, the king, is dead. And Jonathan, his son, died with them in battle. Remember, Jonathan had been David's best friend. So David's now the king, and he's looking for someone of the lineage of Jonathan to, to bless. And he finds out there's only one guy alive from the lineage of Saul and Jonathan. This guy with a funny name, Mephibosheth, and he's poor. At the time, he's living with someone. He can't live on his own. He's crippled. It says he's lame in his feet. And David sends word calling for Mephibosheth to come. Mephibosheth is nervous. Here's why. And he says in 2 Samuel 9, verse 8, What's your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Why did he say a dead dog? Is that a little overstated? Is that just false humility? No. It, wasn't, it was a very common thing in those days when anyone would rise to power as a king that they would find everyone that might possibly have a right to the throne, even someday, and they'd do what? Kill them. You'd wipe them out. You've seen that in movies before, right? I think that comes up in Gladiator. Well, David isn't of the lineage of Saul. Of course, God said he's my man, But, you know, humanly speaking, the argument could be made, look, here's a a guy who's of Saul, that line, the kingly line that started with Saul. You'd expect that maybe he's calling Mephibosheth to to the home of David in order to wipe him out. He thinks that he's a dead man. I mean, after all, Mephibosheth's the only grandson of the king, the king who tried to kill David himself and didn't. Mephibosheth, the last remaining descendant of Saul. And after all, he's crippled and he's poor. What can he possibly give to David? Why would David be coming and asking for him when there's nothing he can do? He can't play a flute. He can't do a painting. He can't become one of his cooks or something. 
In fact, every time it refers to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, it keeps saying he's crippled. It keeps emphasizing the fact that he's crippled. So he's asking, why would he have need of me? And the answer, of course, is that he wouldn't. But what does David say? Listen to this, 2 Samuel 9, 7. David says to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of your father Saul, and you shall eat at my table always. Look at that verse again with the amazing similarities to our forgiveness in mind, our restoration to the king, Jesus. Do not fear. Even though you'd have every human reason, every logical reason to be afraid at me coming and calling for you, I will show kindness to you. Not because of something you did, not because of something you bring, not because of something you can offer, but for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Not because of your worth, but because of his worth. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. You will eat at my table regularly. A sign of fellowship and acceptance. A a place where high-ranking officials and only close friends and dignitaries would eat. You'll be in my club. You'll be of my people. In fact, I'll adopt you. Verse 11, Mephibosheth is at the table as one of the king's sons brought into the family, though he's not of the family. And yet David himself said, who am I that I should get to do this? In fact, that phrase, who am I, is given six times in 2 Samuel 9. Five of them, David says. David says, who am I? Who am I? You say, who am I, Mephibosheth? I say, who am I? Reminding us the king is also unworthy. The king is also a sinner. David is not the answer. Our problem is not a physical deformity. It's not a physical unworthiness. It's it's not the complexity of good or bad lineages. Our problem is more severe. It's in our hearts. It's spiritual. We've gone astray. With our parents and their parents, we've joined a movement of cosmic rebellion against the creator God who made us, the king. We've joined that movement by birth and by choice. Hence, we are worse than dead dogs. Right? That's what scripture tells us. We're worms, it says. The nations are a drop in the bucket, according to God himself. Even our best deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64 tells us. But Jesus came to live and to die that we might be brought into fellowship, that we might be brought to his table. The king comes calling wide and far. Come, all you who are weary, come in. All you who are hungry, come. Why spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Come, drink of my milk, my wine, without money and without price. Our king did for us far more than David ever could have done for Mephibosheth. All David did for Mephibosheth, glorious, surprising as it was, was give him food and a place to eat it, acceptance and riches. 
Christ gives us heaven, the Father, all of the promises. He'll just inherit the earth, that's all. Constant fellowship with him. You can't mess it up. It doesn't depend on you. He's made the covenant with himself. He had to die for us to enter in. Which now, let's quickly talk about these last two. The reign of the king. The fifth thing, the reign of the king. For many, the Christian life starts out just like Jesus came into the world without much fanfare, without much change at first. I know for some of you it's different. You became a Christian and instantly this bad habit just disintegrated, it went away. You know, it was a real night and day change, and that's wonderful. We give praise to God when that happens. And for many, it's more like confessing Christ, believing on him, saying you're a Christian now, going to sleep, and waking up the next day and saying, huh, I don't feel like there's something different. Am I supposed to feel like I have angel's wings now? Am I supposed to feel like there's like this weird feel, like I have a flex capacitor in my heart? What? What am I supposed to feel? Well, just like the way Jesus came into this world. At first, perhaps not much. We grow in it. And the kingdom is growing. Jesus said it's like a small mustard seed. Listen to this, Luke 13, 19. A man took a small mustard seed and sowed it in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Remember that? Ezekiel 17. The nations now come to make their nest in the tree of God's shade and provision. God's kingdom is like a small pebble that grows into a massive boulder, according to Daniel 2. And so now we don't yet fully see all of that rule, that reign. He rules his church, tells us what to do. His Holy Spirit convicts us when we go astray. His kingdom is not of this world, though. It's not visible. It's not seen. And that's why in John 18, when Jesus is asked if he's a king, he says, yeah, I'm a king, but of a kingdom, not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples would fight for me so that I wouldn't be handed over to death. Not only did the disciples not fight, Jesus says, I won't let them fight because this king has to die. They have, he has to die so that they can enter into a kingdom, not of this world, not seen by human eyes, at least not yet. The kingdom is coming, though. It's progressively coming, and this is what Jesus taught us to pray for. So we should pray tying whatever else we pray for into this reality. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray this would stop, that your kingdom would come more in my life. I pray this, nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. Let your kingdom come. Let more and more of your will be done in my heart, in my home, in my life, until you come back. The kingdom is coming, and one day it will be complete and consummated. It will be global. It will be everywhere. It will be visible, so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is this long-awaited, globally needed king. He's the king of all kings. His reign is over all other reigns. Colossians 1 says, 
every spiritual and physical authority in this world is made by him and for him. He's the king. Which leads us to this last thing, the return of the king. One day he will defeat all enemies. He'll make all things new. He's already the world leader. He always has been. And it's been progressively shown. And Christ's resurrection was a a signal. What king has raised himself from the dead? None. Which king is forever eternal? None. Oh, King Tut. Yeah, but we can point to him, right? Right? He said he was forever. And we can go and laugh at his gold coffin. Oh, I'm sure he was a great guy. I'm sure he did a lot. That's a fancy coffin. Nice beard thing. But, but that, what? That's it. That's the best you got? Really? We have a king who lives. He died and he lives. And now he reigns on high and he will forevermore. Not everyone sees it yet. Christians do with the eyes of faith and they want to see it more and more. And so they want others to know about it and enter into it with them. Until he comes back, Christians invite others into this kingdom feast to join them under the rule of Christ through his blood. And until he comes back, they live that out, his kingdom out. They live life out like he's on the throne. And so so we can put worries, anxieties off to the side. We can give them to him. He's there, he's on his throne, he rules. He's already shown us that he's good and he'll do good to us forever and ever. In fact, we're told he'll do good to us with all of his heart and soul and strength. Boy, when God does something with all of his heart, soul, and strength, I bet he does it good. And he does it to the full. That changes things. Now, It also reminds us that we can, until he comes back, be in communion with this God. This king is our king. He's also our father. We can dial up the king. And he's eager to hear us, even sometimes to hear our silliness. One day, his rule and his reign will come to its fullest realization. One day, Revelation 21 says, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more and there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. It's as good as done. Christ has already come. He's the king.